Eventually, there's going to be a vast city on Mars, and eventually maybe a whole planet like the Earth with oceans and lakes and all that. Uh, and it'll be really easy to live there. This is Tim Urban. He's a science writer at the website Wait But Why. He spent a lot of time imagining our future on Mars. On Mars, the gravity is less. It's a third of the Earth's gravity. That's not so bad. And it's actually kind of fun. You can, like, jump out of your second-story window to go to work. You can, like, jump out of it <laughs> like you jump off a five-foot ledge. It's really everything just multiplied by three. So if you can jump off a six-foot ledge right now, no problem. You can jump off an 18-foot ledge on Mars. Pretty fun. Um, basketball there. Right. So I, was just, I was just thinking, yeah, LeBron James can dunk on a, what, 30-foot There's going to be a league. There's going to be a whole sports league invented, sports in general, invented on Mars. But it won't be all fun and gravity-defying games. There's going to be these industries. Of course, you'll have an office. You know, the companies will have an office on Mars. You know, kids will go to Mars for college. People on Mars will want to communicate with people on Earth. Phone calls will be tough. At the nearest point in their orbits, Earth and Mars are still three light minutes away. Nothing can go faster than light. So what it means is you'll never be able to Skype or text in real time. Then Mars doesn't get farther and farther away, uh, and eventually it's 22 light minutes away. It's going to be really annoying to communicate. And for two weeks, every 26 months, the sun is directly in between Earth and Mars, and actually they won't be able to communicate at all. It'll be wow. it'll go dark. We'll have the holiday. We'll call it something. And then once the day ends, it'll be this big celebration. People will all be talking, hey, we're back, whatever. But here's the first of many challenges. Getting to Mars would mean making regular trips to a planet in a totally different orbit than ours. Every 26 months, Earth laps Mars. It's when they're closest together, so picture two racers and one laps the other. It's right when they, they're next to each other. Yes. So when Mars and Earth are closest, you can send ships to and from Earth and Mars. That's the only time you're going to do it. 2018 is the last time no one knows whether Mars is close or not when it's close. It's not a topic of conversation. Seven years from now, this is all anyone's going to be talking about. This could be our future building a home for humanity on Mars to start the long project of colonizing other planets. But maybe it shouldn't be our future. After all, there are so many problems to deal with on our own planet right now. Last week, Tim Urban and other experts debated whether alien intelligence exists in the universe. This week, they're back to answer an even bigger question. Is colonizing other planets our best hope to save humankind from extinction? Or is launching billions of dollars into space the worst idea in the universe? For The Atlantic, I'm Derek Thompson, and this is Crazy Genius. When I go out and talk to kids and say, one of you is going to be the first person to walk on Mars, you know, they can't stop wiggling and, and, and being incredibly excited. That's Helen Stofan. You might remember her from last week's episode. She's the director of the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum and the former chief scientist of NASA. For a planetary scientist, I actually have a fairly unusual uh, background because I'm actually a NASA brat. Um, my dad started working at NASA uh, before I was born uh, in 1958, and I'd end up at age of 10 defending NASA's budget to other kids. She went from defending Apollo missions to planning Mars missions. You helped guide the development of a long-range plan to get humans to Mars. Why do you think it's so important that we go to Mars? One of the reasons to go to Mars is when we go to Mars, we're going to do it as an international community, just like we do the International Space Station. 
Uh, and I think it's, it's space has become a powerful tool for positive diplomacy. That's reason number one. Reason number two is when you try to do things that are really hard, you really push. You're not just saying, let's do the next incremental thing. Let's do the thing that's 10 increments forward. You push technology, you, you push innovation, and that returns huge benefits to our U.S. economy. Stofan is listing a few of the sensible reasons to explore the stars. Tim Urban's interest in Mars is a bit more existential. All of our eggs are on one planet. Uh, let's get life insurance for the species. If we had a hard drive with a precious family photo album on it, we would back it up. So let's <laughs> back up the species by building a sustainable civilization on another planet. Why are we ruling out Venus and the moon again? Um, if you went to Venus, so the first thing that would happen is you would be flattened like a pancake <laughs> under the pressure of the atmosphere. Actually, it would crush your bones. You'd be flattened like a pancake. Also, it's hotter than a pizza oven and the air is poisonous. Mercury, you don't have the atmosphere problem. No pressure, no poisonous gases. Um, the problem there is that because there's no atmosphere, during the day it's about 800 degrees, and mm. at nighttime it's like negative 200 degrees. It's frigid. And the moon? The moon has the same problem as Mercury. The, the, actually, people don't realize it. When you see the moon, you're like, oh, it's a pretty half moon. No, no, no. That's, there's the lit half, which is incredibly hot, and you'd get radiation poisoning and die um, and burn to death on it. And then there's the dark part, which is frigid. And then we have Mars. A few years ago, Tim Urban got some fan mail. That's always nice for a writer. The fan's name was Elon Musk, the founder of the aerospace company SpaceX, the electric car company Tesla, and a bunch of other ventures. Musk's people wanted to set up a call. They literally would say things like, and I'm sure you're busy, but is there a time you think? So I'm like, is there a time? Okay, let's talk about this. So I was like, oh, from midnight to the next midnight, any day in the future until I'm, until I'm dead is good for me. I don't know what, if anything in there works for him. So Urban got on the phone with Elon Musk. He's basically, I think he felt a lot of frustration with the messaging capabilities of Tesla and SpaceX. Musk said he wanted to build the future, electric cars and solar-powered cities and trains that move through underground vacuums. And he said, Tim, I also want to go to Mars, and here's how I'll do it. Now, this is where I have to tell you that Musk's ideas don't always work. Tesla has missed all sorts of car production deadlines. On the other hand, SpaceX has built the most powerful rocket in the world. So I'm going to put my own skepticism on hold for a few minutes because I really want to understand how the heck do you build a civilization on another planet? First, Elon Musk said we need to build a giant rocket. The rocket itself is 40 stories high. So it's a picture of a pretty big, you know, I'm from Boston. The biggest building there is a little bit taller than that. It's a skyscraper. It's the Hancock Tower in Boston. It's a skyscraper. This rocket would be made of two parts— a booster, which provides the power to blast into space, and a spaceship to carry the payload. So the payload is the thing that the rocket's actually bringing up into space. So uh, and sometimes that's a satellite, sometimes that's people, sometimes it's cargo. And how many people is that? How many people ideally would be on that spaceship in the first trip to Mars? The first mission, you know, probably won't have that many. It could have, you know, 50 or so, but they eventually we're talking about 300. You know, so it's a cruise ship. So half Royal Caribbean, half Starship Enterprise. And you have the most pristine view of the stars. That's pretty cool. You don't have the atmosphere blocking you. Stars won't twinkle. The atmosphere makes them twinkle. Wow. It'll just be these little points everywhere. 
And if you get bored of staring off into space, there's going to be a little movie theater. There's going to be a little classroom. There'll be a little doctor's office. And I think there's going to be a restaurant that might be good. The problem is that cooking is hard because things float up in the air. So I don't know how they, but you're going to have some chef that's awesome that's enticed to figure this out. There's going to be a whole industry, by the way, of zero gravity food making. You know, this is all these things you have to think about. Getting to Mars is one thing. Then there's actually living on Mars. These first trips are not fun. They're not recreation. These are people who want to go and suffer. And you do it because you want to be part of the first few trips. You're a pioneer. You're an explorer. You know, you want to be part of that. There's too much cosmic radiation on Mars to just land and start walking around the surface. It's got to have a hospital, some kind of school. They're going to have to basically build a whole set of agriculture underground. Then they need to build a fuel depot because people need to come back. And they can't bring their fuel. So what is fuel? You need oxygen and you need methane, which is, I think, CH4. So you need O, C, and H. So they can use water and carbon dioxide to make methane and liquid oxygen to fly back. Then you can start slowly but surely building places outside of there, a little city, maybe a dome, you know, that people can live under that's radiation protected and is heated. So eventually we don't just want to go to Mars to live underground. We want to go to Mars to turn Mars into something like a second Earth, right? Uh, How do we do that? So this is called terraforming. Terraforming Mars. What that means is actually trying to make Mars as livable for humans as the Earth currently is. One thing we've gotten good at on the planet is is climate change, yes. unfortunately. We're going to have to, we're going to use that now. We actually have a use for it. We're going to global warm the shit out of Mars. Methane is very dangerous in the Earth's atmosphere, but it's great on Mars. So they're going to pump out stuff like methane. They can do things like explode nuclear bombs on the poles. <laughs> this is a real plan, uh, which melts a lot of the ice. When the ice melts, CO2 is released into the atmosphere, first of all. It warms a lot of the planet. There's a lot more warmth. And the water itself starts kind of a feedback cycle. You end up with lakes. So between those these few things, you end up with an atmosphere that can trap heat. So it gets much warmer and we get more protection from radiation. So every terrible thing that we're doing to Earth... It's going to go great on Mars. We want to do to Mars. Yes. It's like we, we, we're all the things that we do that are bad. It's like, good, we're, we're so good at this. Actually, this is something we're good at. <laughs> we have been practicing for <laughs> we, so long. We're unbelievable at just, this. Just yeah. centuries of practice to screw up a planet. And after all this, we still have to pump in oxygen. The oxygen part's going to take at least a couple hundred years. First, you'll have to wear a mask. Eventually, you can start taking off the mask, but it's like being at the top of Everest. It's really, really thin. You people pass out. Then it gets a little bit better. Now it's like being, uh, you know, in, in, in Cusco and then eventually like Denver. And eventually, you're just living there and it's completely normal atmosphere. It sounds like science fiction, but Urban says, actually, it's just science. I would say there's a 90-plus percent chance that there's someone there by 2030. There's probably a 50 percent chance someone's on Mars by 2025. And in which case, there's a good chance that the Neil Armstrong of Mars is back on Earth by 2030. He's the biggest celebrity in the world. Urban says the campaign to colonize Mars will get us thinking big again. And it all seems so doable. Fire up the rockets, dig the bunker, nuke the poles. I'm finding myself catching Mars fever. But should we really be thinking of Mars as an alternative to Earth? There is no planet B, so let's, let's focus on Earth. Coming up, some real talk about the red planet.
Elon Musk has said uh, that a million humans could live on Mars by the 2060s. What do you think about that timeline? You know, I think he's overly optimistic. And, um, I, you know, I love his enthusiasm. I love his push for Mars. Uh, I think SpaceX has done amazing things. They're a great, great partner with NASA. Uh, but Mars is hard. That's Ellen Stofan again, the former chief scientist of NASA. She says that long ago, Earth and Mars were kind of like fraternal twins. We think about 4 billion years ago, 3.8 billion years ago, around the same time that life evolved here on Earth, the conditions were pretty much the same on Mars. Mars was a habitable environment. So it was wet. It wasn't too acidic. It wasn't too basic. But that's changed. Today, Mars is like the worst desert you could possibly imagine. You know, the surface of Mars is radiated by both cosmic radiation, radiation from the sun, There's all these toxic chemicals called perchlorates in the soil on Mars. It doesn't have a protective magnetic field like the Earth does. That protection keeps solar winds from stripping away our ozone layer. So Mars is kind of a mess. It's freezing, but you'd get sunburned in minutes. And also, you can't breathe. Think of Mars over the next probably at least 100 years as being like a scientific outpost, kind of like Antarctica, but way harder to live there. So think of... 10, 20, 30 people on the surface of Mars, even by the 2060s. Stofan wants to treat Mars like Antarctica. Nobody's trying to colonize Antarctica. It's not a home. It's just an outpost for a few brave scientists. Mars, she says, fits into NASA's scientific mission. When we look outward, we're really actually always turning that information back to the Earth. NASA publishes a a book every year called NASA Spinoffs. They're incredibly numerous. A lot of the technologies that enable our cell phones to exist um, come from NASA technologies. When Elon Musk and Tim Urban look to Mars, they're thinking, Mars is humanity's external hard drive. Let's back it up. Get us ready for life after Earth. But Stofan says, no, just save Earth. There is no planet B. You know, we have to clean up our act on this planet because, and that's what the only thing that worries me a little bit when we start talking about millions of people on Mars in the next 20 years. I don't don't want people to ever lose focus on the fact that we've got to do something about climate change right now. And I think sometimes people will say, oh, we can always go to Mars. No, we can't. Mars is hard. We can't breathe the air. It's far away. It's it's got issues. So let's, let's focus on Earth. Stofan is right. Mars is hard. We should focus on Earth. For now. But what about the future of humanity in a thousand years or 10,000? Planning for a future after Earth might be a question for a philosopher. So I'm Will McCaskill. I'm Associate Professor of Moral Philosophy at the University of Oxford. Full disclosure, he's also my former roommate. Now, McCaskill is one of the founders of Effective Altruism, a philanthropic movement that thinks deeply about how to do the most good in the world. I think that there is just this deep question of, if you want to do good, then should you focus on kind of definite near-term suffering, such as by distributing bed nets to protect children from malaria, or by campaigning to reduce the worst excesses of factory farming? Or should you do this kind of more speculative thing, potentially, of trying to ensure that the human race develops into this flourishing interplanetary civilization? 
Will's saying we have an obligation to ensure a habitat for future generations. And a part of that is planning for life after Earth. It might seem strange to think that we owe anything to people who aren't going to be born for 1,000 years, 10,000 years. They're so far away, we'll never meet them. Then again, you could say, why should we care about people we'll never meet who are 1,000 miles away, 10,000 miles away? Normal people would say, that's ridiculous. Of course, we should care equally about everybody, even if we live on the other side of Earth. But this is also true in time. That's Anders Sandberg. He's another philosopher at Oxford University. We shouldn't be discriminating against people who happen to be born a thousand years in the future, or a million. We should make sure that we don't leave a world in, a, in such a state that their lives are going to be worse, or that we're not going to be born at all. Even if we do everything we can to take care of this planet, there is only one way to guarantee that human life outlasts the Earth, and that is to extend humanity to the stars. I think my core case would be that we want to survive as a species. And we can certainly, if we get our act together, live for a long time on Earth, but eventually the sun will turn into a red giant and Earth is going to be somewhat too hot for life. And of course, we could move into space habitat orbiting the sun, but once the sun turns into a red giant, those habitats are also not going to work. Eventually, we would need to go somewhere else. And the reason for that is that the future could be so big. There could be so many future generations living so full lives that we're kind of risking it all if we just stay on one planet. How bad would it be for the human race to go extinct in the next few centuries? Well, one way in which it would be bad clearly is the deaths of everyone alive today. That's kind of uncontroversial. But should we also consider the loss of life of the hundreds of trillions of people into the future who will therefore not come into existence, will therefore not have happy, flourishing lives. And the answer just has to be yes. We should also consider them. Humanity has a lot of problems that deserve our attention today. Terraforming Mars might seem like a pointless distraction, or worse, an impossible job for a species that can't even cut it on one planet. But we don't have to choose between solving the problems of today and the distant future. We can do both. Let's be the generation that solves the crisis of climate change on Earth right now. That's for us and our children. But let's also be the generation that kicks off the long project of colonizing other planets, even if it's for the grandchildren of our grandchildren's grandchildren. This season of Crazy Genius has covered a lot of time and space. Facebook, Amazon, blockchain, tech addiction. One theme of the last eight weeks has been the idea that technology is nearsighted. We don't immediately see the vast implications of new products and ideas. We tend to invent first and ask questions later. We build apps and machines to hook our attention before thinking, do we want to be hooked? We let tech companies become Goliaths before thinking, is there a danger to some companies getting too big? Colonizing other planets will be a multi-century effort. Nobody alive today will see the end of this project. But in a way, that's really cool. 
It forces us to be farsighted, to take the long view. When you think about just how much is at stake, and then when you think about just, you know, how frail uh, human civilization really is, it seems like we have this obligation to those in the future to ensure that we're not the generation that completely screws everything up. This season of Crazy Genius was produced by Krista Ripple and Kasia Mihailovic. Our executive producer is Catherine Wells. Atlantic fellow Abdullah Fayyad booked interviews and fact-checked each episode. David Herman is our wonderful engineer. Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme song and all the music in this series. A very special thanks go to The Atlantic's executive editor, Matt Thompson, for his editorial guidance. And also special thanks to Kevin Townsend, our podcast producer in D.C. Finally, a very, very warm shout-out to Paul Ruest at Argo Studios, where we record Crazy Genius in New York City. For The Atlantic, I'm Derek Thompson. Thanks for listening, for subscribing, for sharing this season of Crazy Genius. And great news, we're coming back. Season two of Crazy Genius will be in this very podcast feed at the end of the summer. So please stay subscribed. And until then, find me on Facebook or Twitter at DKThomp, D-K-T-H-O-M-P. I would love to hear what big, crazy, genius ideas or questions you'd like us to tackle in the next season. <laughs>